oh, you're going to college for vocal performance. Like, <laughs> you better be good at waiting tables. Right? That's just the stuff that you hear all the time when you say, I'm a musician or I want to do this. We're all being taught you need a plan B. Uh, and a plan B, like, while plan A is still going on. Yeah, yeah. From NCPR, it's Northwards. Conversations with people you should know about things you should hear about. From and about northern New York, Vermont, and beyond. I'm Mitch Tyke. Support for the Northwards podcast comes from the J.C. Steininger and M.E. McDonald Charitable Fund at Adirondack Foundation in support of the Adirondack Foundation Building Stronger Adirondack Communities. I always thought it would be cool to be a musician. That guy you just heard a second ago, Ethan Shanty, he's a musician and he's pretty cool. I mean, I played saxophone in my high school jazz band and we won a couple of festival awards. But after that, I pretty much became a guy who listens to music rather than makes it. But I've interviewed a whole lot of musicians in the last couple of decades, and I noticed something interesting that subtly changed, I don't know, 10, maybe 12 years ago. The process of writing and making music has been consistent. But the life of many musicians outside the studio seems like it's changed, and it makes me wonder when any of them even have time to write and make music. With fewer major label or even minor label contracts supporting musicians, a lot of them these days are juggling music with publicity, with distribution, and with money management. And while some of them might enjoy managing their social media feeds and even, you know, designing shirts and stickers and whatnot, very few of them went into music because they like financial spreadsheets. That's what makes Tiffany Sorcelli such an interesting person to talk with. She went to the Crane School of Music at SUNY Potsdam because she wanted to go into vocal performance. But somewhere along the line, and we'll hear how that happened in just a few minutes, she shifted her career from making music to helping musicians and other artists manage their resources so they can keep enjoying what they do. Tiffany Sorcelli, welcome. I am so excited to be here. Do I have this right? Did, did you have your first um, professional singing uh, adventure when you were eight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think it was probably closer to nine. So when I was eight, I um, I came home from school one day and it was like the talent show signups were there. And I came home and I said, you know, mom, I'm going to sing in the talent show. And I remember her reaction was like, wait, c can you sing? <laughs> and, you know, nobody in my family is musicians. You know, we had some piano lessons. Um, my mom's second cousin was in the run of Cats <laughs> on Broadway. But like that's as close as our family had gotten. So this came out of left field. And uh, she was like, okay, if you want to. So I practiced at home with one of those big old boxy karaoke machines and a <laughs> microphone and got a big old flashy dress. And in my second grade talent show, I sang Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All in front of a whole auditorium of people. And so that was that. And so after that, my parents were like, okay, so this is like a thing. You could do this. <laughs> and in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, there was a really popular dinner theater, uh, the Dutch Apple Dinner Theater. And... Um, they were doing a run of Meet Me in St. Louis, and I auditioned, and I got the role of young Tootie in the family. <laughs> um, and, that, you know, I just fell in love with theater and musical theater and singing. And, 
continued performing pretty much like all of my developmental years in and around Pennsylvania where we grew up. And then uh, when my family relocated to Long Island, uh, I was still very active in theater out on Eastern Long Island before coming to college at Potsdam. But this is really one of those cases where it's not like you had a family full of artists <laughs> who were who were understanding what the journey would be like. You were kind of you were the pioneer. Yeah, I was. It was like the opposite of the middle child syndrome, right? <laughs> Instead of fading to the background, I stepped into the spotlight um, and just totally uh, made it my entire identity and, and 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 had a lot of fun doing it. Are, are you the middle child? I am the middle child. <laughs> what, did, what did the older and the younger uh, think of this whole thing? Um, at the time, there was a lot of like, shut up, Tiff. Stop acting, <laughs> Tiff. Stop singing along. And then as we grew older, we would all sing along to the soundtracks. That, and we would all take different characters of like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat or Phantom or something. And we would all read the, this is when there were liner notes in oh, the yeah. CD cases. <laughs> we would lay there and we would read the CD cases and we would take turns singing the different parts just all together. I think that's the thing that I miss the most about the CD and the, I mean, you know, I've got vinyl, I have CDs in my office, but, you know, when you're when you're online, like, there are too many clicks to get to, to, like, sit there and look at the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, the supportive documentation, it's there, but you have to, like, find it. <laughs> um, what did, what was kind of your expectation when you got to Crane um, for where your musical life would go? I, so having gone to high school in Long Island, my my music teacher, um, Esther Scott, who she's passed away, but she's beloved here in the North Country as well. Um, why, why is she beloved here in the oh, North Oh, she, she taught so many. She was Patty LaPone's teacher um, in, in Northport. She lived yeah. here. The, the Scott family uh, lived here. Uh, she moved back here. She lived across from the Potsdam campus. Um, Active in the community, yeah. She she just did a ton. This um, is where here. I lack institutional memory. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, she uh, passed away at the ripe age of uh, ninety six, wow. and uh, it was yeah. She's a matriarch in my life. But um, so she was recommending that I go to Crane for college uh, for vocal performance, and. I did my research and I was like, okay, Stephanie Blythe went to Crane and Renee Fleming went to Crane. Mm-hmm. So clearly there's some like success leaves clues. Um, and at the time, I just thought I was only going into opera. I was only going into performance. And it was like I was so dead set to come to Potsdam and Crane. I auditioned on the island. I never came to the campus until I moved in. And my dad and I got terribly lost somewhere outside of Albany. This is back before GPS was on your phone or even your <laughs> dashboard. And we were looking at the atlas and we we're looking looking at the maps and we're like, we're on Route 9. Why can't we find this? And then I'm like looking up the map and I'm like, oh, yeah, we got to keep keep going, right? Long Islanders truly had no sense of the size of New York State. Um, but yeah, it was just, you know, success leaves clues. And, you know, that was the next, I was pointed in that direction and thought, here I go. I want to do full-time performance all the time. And? <laughs> well, I got, I, got to, um, I got to Potsdam, absolutely fell in love. And I became very curious, right, in my very first semester of what the career as a, as, a, as a performer really looks like. And at this time, right, 10 years of internalized starving artist trope, <laughs> you know, pumped into my mind. People are like, oh, you're going to college for vocal performance. Like, <laughs> you better be good at waiting tables. Right. That's just the stuff that you hear all the time when you say I'm a musician or I want to do this. So when I was in school and I was Oh, gosh, even at my audition, I was heavily, heavily influenced to add an education major. In fact, um, 
Floyd Callahan, who was on the 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 committees doing the auditions on Long Island, was like, "Oh, we're just going to add education to her her application anyway." And I remember Esther Scott went in and was like, "Nope, absolutely not, Floyd." Um, but yeah, so I, there was a lot of pressure to add something else, and so I began getting really curious about the the industry, the life of a singer, and. Postum has a music business program. So I decided to add a music business double major uh, right in my first year. Um, but at the time, I think it was very product so- focused, and I was very interested in going more of the arts admin side. But the whole the whole notion that that these other people had, uh, whether it's waiting tables or or adding an education major, was that an artist really can't make a living just as a performer unless things go really really right. Right, right. It's it's we're all being taught you need a plan B uh, and a plan B like while plan A is still going on. Yeah, yeah, and and I think a lot of artists continue to do that, create side hustles, multiple revenue streams. Um, when I added the administration major, uh, you know, I went through my four years, I graduated double major. I actually took a gap year and I worked in New York in an arts administration firm. And for me, that was like peeking under the hood. Like, what do contracts really look like? What does singing at Carnegie Hall really pay? And it was really eye opening. And, and, and that's when I started to get the sense that even when you quote unquote make it, even when you have an international career and management and all of the glamour that comes along with it, it's hard. It's really hard. And the the artists that we were supporting on our on our roster were very frustrated. And I just thought, how can you be so angry about succeeding in a career that you purportedly love? Why do you hate it so much? Because they were miserable. And it was just a lot of that fear and anxiety and burnout of having to leave your family on Christmas Day to go sing a Messiah in Salt Lake City, like because you had to. And that for me was a turning point. I, I just I got off the phone with that client who was really mad about the travel we booked for her. And I thought, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to have to leave my family on Christmas Day to go sing a Messiah in Salt Lake City. And for me, that was a turning point. So instead of pursuing um, a, a master's in performance, I was singing in New York. I was singing with the New York City Master Chorale. I did some soloing with them. But I just thought, oh, gosh, now what? So I went to a headhunter. I really leaned on my uh, music business degree, emphasis on the business side. And uh, and I was placed as the second assistant to the owner of an $11 billion hedge fund. So that, for me, was a huge – it was just complete different worlds, leaving classical music and the arts, going into financial sector. And that was a major turning point in my life. You went to work for this hedge fund uh, and, and, and turned away from the classical music. Uh, but here you are today <laughs> uh, working with musicians. So, so talk about that, that, that transitional period where, where you started working in finance and how it led you back to music. So I'll give you kind of like the Cliff Notes version because this is like 15 years of my young adult development where I spent a lot of time banging my head on my desk. So here I am. I have a bachelor's of music. I am working as the second assistant to an $11 billion hedge fund owner now, making more money than I ever thought. Um, I think I made more than my mom at the time. And I just thought, well, I'm not thinking. I'm not using my brain. I'm not using my degree. And I'm so far afield. Then as life has it, I got engaged. My now husband was coming back to Crane to do his master's. And I was like, okay, well, I don't really want to do education, but that gets me back to music. So I came and did a master's in music ed, finally getting that ed degree that Floyd wanted me to. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I, the Orchestra of Northern New York was looking for a business manager. And I remember meeting with the lovely Vernice Church, and she was like, 
I mean, I feel like sometimes it was like I had industry experience, I had the degree and the background, and I was young and energetic and had a pulse, right? Like they're like, (laughs) she can do it. But for me, it was baptism by fire. I had the opportunity as the business manager there to work with Ken Andrews so closely, um, who was a great mentor, and do everything, ticketing and fundraising and everything. And I, having just come from Wall Street, was very comfortable talking about money. So I remember creating partnerships with St. Lawrence Chocolates at the time, and I met with with, – Jenny and Brian Walker, and we started having after parties at the 1844 house and really looking to create multiple revenue streams and sponsorships and community partnerships through the art institution. And I thought, aha, here is a way that I can combine music and and my my background in the arts. And then as life has it, uh, my husband's job um, was accessed where he was teaching in Malone, and we ended up in the capital region. And so I, I stayed in fundraising for about another six years, so about a decade in fundraising altogether, and I loved it. I just thought, wow, if like normal people had access to this team of experts, tax planning, helping them achieve their goals, educating them about the opportunities that are out there, like more people could become philanthropists or whatever. So then I... Uh, this early 30s, I decided I'm going to totally change careers. I have a master's of music right now, and I'm going to become a financial advisor. So I started studying for my licensing and credentialing. And as life has it, I ended up opening my first financial planning firm in my third trimester with my first child. <laughs> because why not? Why not do everything at the same time? Um, and uh, and it was just a wonderful learning experience. And I love I've always been that geek around finance. I was that friend person in our friend group where, like, when people were getting mortgages, I was like, ooh, let's talk about your options. Like, even before this was my job, um, you know, telling the people younger than me, like, okay, a Roth IRA is this, and you should save here. And so I was just always a geek about this, and I thought I could actually help people. Now I have a education master's. I know how to teach. I know how to assimilate this information in a way that it's easily understood. And I started um, – working with people and planning for them um, as their financial advisor. So that was in 2015, and it's really grown since. And because my experience as, as a working artist and most of my peer groups are also artists, the same challenges and problems started coming up when I'd be meeting with them and talking about it. It's living on an inconsistent income stream, planning for the future, building projects. How do you fund your life and your career? And I started thinking, wow, when you go and get a bachelor's and master's in music, you don't have a class on this. We're not being taught how to pay your taxes as a freelancer. And that was a huge gap in just my understanding coming into the career. So I developed um, resources. I started teaching in 2018. I formalized Virtuoso Advising for Artists so I could go out, speak, spread the gospel of financial <laughs> literacy, really, to to working artists. Because in at my core, like the world needs artists. It needs people to put out art and beauty and their talents to the world. We need them to stay and feel supported and live holy, you know, just wonderful lives. And they need to be able to fund their lives as well while doing it. So if we can educate, if we can provide resources and tools ahead of time to get people on the right track, they can stay in the career longer, which is essentially what this planet needs. Well, yeah, I wonder, because you were talking about your your time in arts administration and seeing how miserable the artists were even Not as all they were. Them, but some. Sure, <laughs> sure. But I mean, but but it sounds like one of the things that you're trying to do now is is give them the tools so, so they're maybe less miserable. Yeah, so that 
that you can focus on just doing your best work and not so much about living paycheck to paycheck or, you know, putting everything on a credit card and then waiting till that gig pays at your last performance so that you can pay that credit card off and then hold your breath until the next gig comes. Like, it's just so cyclical. And if we can build some systems early on I, and, and, and set people on the right course and honestly, even understanding taxes as a freelancer – Something I say all the time is the IRS is my least favorite charity. <laughs> and people overpay on taxes because they're so scared of getting it wrong. But really, if you're overpaying on taxes, you're robbing your own career. So if you can understand the fundamentals and have systems in place, it can allow you to just focus on creating in your artistic way and then supporting the things that you need in your life, you know, like food and housing <laughs> and, you know, your personal goals as well. Um Interesting thinking of the of the IRS as your least favorite charity. I mean, it is something that people people do tend to, you know, they they hope for that big refund and they don't realize that like the big refund isn't shouldn't be the goal. Yeah, yeah. Or when you're freelancing, when you get a check for five thousand dollars, thinking that five thousand dollars is yours, it's not, right? And so we need to start making plans and making strategies based on real numbers, right? So of that five thousand dollars, taxes comes out, expenses of the career come out. If you have a manager, that comes out, you know. So understanding what your true numbers are, and then being able to build a life that is within those bounds, or or if not, figuring out the revenue streams that gets you to the goal and the lifestyle that you want. What are the other mistakes that you, you you often encounter artists making when they come to you? Hmm. I think that there's, especially I work with a lot of performers, and there is this expectation you need to look a certain way, or you need to buy couture, or you need <laughs> to, you know, especially going into auditions. Um, I th- it's good because more and more companies are saying, like, they don't care if you're wearing Louis Vuitton shoes. Um, but there's this expectation that they need to spend a lot of money to look a certain way, to build that brand. And yes, brand development is important, but... You don't have to spend a lot of money to get there. And in fact, the best case, the best practice is live like a student when you're a student, live like a student when you're a young artist, live like a student when you're building your career until you're at a place where you're not having to constantly leverage debt, right? You have money built up in your business account. You've got money built up in your personal account and you can sustain and live a lifestyle that your art and artistry can support. I think a lot of people aren't looking forward. We constantly have to pay ourselves back. Do you think, I mean, should these things be part of arts education, part of music education from an earlier point? I mean, you know, I'm not talking about, I, I think your your husband teaches, you know, high school music. Yeah. And I, that, it seems like unlikely that this would come up in high school chorus. But, you know, for people who are taking uh, music seriously in college, do you think these are things that they they need to learn before they get to the point where they're graduating and have to find you? Absolutely. It's it's really just entrepreneurship 101. You know, if you're pursuing a creative um, a career path as an individual, as an ensemble, as a studio artist, you know, you need to understand the fundamentals of entrepreneurship, right? You are your own employer. And our relationship with money changes in different stages of life. So if you start this conversation too early, there's no concept of money and how it works. And it goes in one ear and out the other. Um, I've worked with high schoolers in D.C. at a dance um, at the dance lab there in the Kennedy Center. And it's a very different conversation than, (laughs) you know, people starting their lives as young adults. But I do believe that money and financial literacy is is a muscle, just like everything else we do in this career. It takes practice. It takes repetition to get good at it. The sooner that we can begin that practice, you know, in undergrad, right, have a semester on entrepreneurship, funding your life as an artist, um, financial literacy 101. But it does dovetail with good business practices. What's a profit and loss statement? Why is it important? How does it tie into your Schedule C for your taxes? All of these things are 
are really essential to building and thriving as a freelancer or as a career in the arts. Is, is there something about the arts today that makes this especially relevant? I mean, have, have things changed? Uh, you know, not that you can think back on, you know, like the 1950s or 60s here. Um, but I mean, having interviewed um, a number of musicians, many musicians over the years, you know, almost to a person, they say, you know, they didn't get into this business so that they could be their own marketer or their <laughs> own, you know, or their own financial advisor. Um, but that's really something you can't get away from, it seems, at this point. It's the, the industry, all industries have changed so much. And we're going to s- continue to see change with technological advances, AI and that kind of thing. But, you know, there was a time when you could win them at competition and then kind of get that white glove treatment and not have to actually do anything. <laughs> and that was a lot. I mean, I think that stopped with Maria Callas. Um, <laughs> but it, the the thing is, is now is that the career is so much performing in general, so much more expensive. Um, you need to have updated headshots all the time. You need to have reels if you're auditioning for movies. You need to have, you know, things on your website. You need to have a website. You need to keep that updated. You need to have branding, social media, all of these things. Like, it is a constant barrage. Oh, and then you just have to also maintain your artistic integrity and do your job. Like, <laughs> there's there's so much demand on working artists these days in terms of um, what is required of them. And and really, I, I, it's it's totally different. Um, and, and the upfront costs are so much different as well. Not to mention the the economy that we live in is totally different than it was, you know, 40 years ago. And cost of living over the last 40 years has increased at 117 percent, I believe. But artist pay has certainly not kept pace like most other salaries. When you think about the when you think about the the Tiffany that was on stage at age uh, nine in Lancaster or or 12, on um, you know, the the giant stage in Stroudsburg or, or wherever. Um, uh, and you think of the enjoyment that you got out of doing that. What makes you happiest today about this life that you have? That's a really good question. What makes me happiest now is helping uplift and keep other people doing their best work. I I still sing. I sing in the Capital Region. I sing with my children all the time. Uh, but performance is not where my heart is right now. It is really in up-leveling, providing more resources. Um, I, I want to completely eradicate that starving artist trope. And when I get a, a text or an email from someone that says, Tiff, this is a true um, thing, Tiff, I no longer cry on my bathroom floor about money anymore, like you've changed my life. To me, right, it's the ripple effect. I've impacted that one person who's gonna go out and create art and beauty and impact the world. And when we multiply that by the hundreds of students that I have the privilege of supporting and coaching each year, it, it grows, it's it's really beautiful. It, it has to be something to be to be helping them in this way and then go see them perform. Yeah, and, and to that aim, right, I have a completely separate business that now, you know, I, I own an asset management firm. I've, I've launched that entirely on my own. So I build the education through the education company, Virtuoso Advising for Artists. And when and if they want support from someone who knows and understands that working artist lifestyle, financial planning, asset management, we have the RIA, the Registered Investment Advisory Services, dedicated to working artists. We're the first RIA in the country exclusively dedicated to working with artists and supporters of the arts. And through that, we continue to make impact by providing those professional services. You know, you left Potsdam some time ago, but you are still very involved uh, with your alma mater, Mm. um, you know, which is like the education world is having its own struggles uh, at this point. But, uh, you know, what what's your hope? in working with uh, SUNY Potsdam now for how you might be able to influence the way people are learning music in the future? 
I recently became a trustee uh, for SUNY Potsdam, and I've been really interested in how my own liberal arts education has completely influenced every step along my way, every pivot, turn, and everything, because as, you know, having that well-rounded education allows me to problem solve and see opportunities in a way that, you know, if I went to a conservatory education and I just only sang, I wouldn't have had all of the wonderful experiences. So one of the things that I'm seeing is as trends are changing, not just in a post-pandemic educational climate, but what our students, current students need from their higher ed education experience is also changing. And it's been really interesting to see Potsdam's take on that, right? Yes, there were really negative things that came out of the cuts, but essentially, in my opinion, when you look at the numbers, it's just good business. And that good business decision puts us on a path um, to move forward, to be innovative, to start exploring. I'm not speaking for the college in any way here, but, you know, potentially exploring curricular opportunities that don't even exist now because the technology is still being invented. Like it's going to put us on the path to really support that next generation of critical thinkers and artists and musicians and teachers. So it's been a real privilege to be a part of this team and almost have like a front row seat to the changing trends. So, so as someone who who graduated with a, a couple of music degrees, mm-hmm. uh, you don't necessarily see what's happening at, not to put words in your mouth here, yeah. but I guess that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, but it sounds like you don't see these as kind of dragging uh, SUNY Potsdam irrevocably away from a broad-based liberal arts education. No, I think that while I am very disappointed to see that there had to be the cuts in the arts programming, I understand why they had to be done, and that doesn't mean that people won't get dance experience here. And it doesn't mean that they you can't dance, right? There's so many other places people can get that education or that experience. And who knows? You know, student body might come back and say, we demand these classes, and this is where the demand is, and this is where people are enrolling. And you know, and seek the opportunities that way. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like, um, you know, the, the I guess the question I had was, you know, for somebody who came here partly because you had access to music, but a broad-based liberal arts education, you don't necessarily see that experience not, I'm doing like a triple negative at this point, <laughs> uh, but it sounds like um, you could imagine other students you know, even with fewer options, the the broad education uh, is is still there. I think there's so much development that happens when you're a young adult and you come here and you may come here with one idea. I think this happens at all higher ed learning. You come with one idea, one sense of your identity, and through the education and the experiences that you have in that four or five years for some, it changes. It changes what you want. It changes who you are. And I would have never had the well-rounded experiences had I not come to that liberal education experience. And I think that that's, that's what Postum's looking to provide for generations of students to come. Tiffany Sorosali, thank you so much for, for making the trip up to, uh, to, to see us. Thank you for having me. This is, this, I love NCPR. I always still tune in in the Capital Region. <laughs> it's just my absolute favorite. So it is a privilege to be here and speaking with your listeners. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Tiffany Soroselli is the CEO of Virtuoso Advising for Artists and of Virtuoso Asset Management in Saratoga Springs. She's also a graduate of SUNY Potsdam's Crane School of Music and is on the SUNY Potsdam Board of Trustees. And you can learn more about what she does at ncpr.org slash northwards. And hey, that is also where you can listen to last week's interview with English teacher Kelsey Francis, the previous episode with Hidden Brains Shankar Vedantam, or... 
you know, all of our back catalog. And if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast. But if you haven't subscribed, how are you listening right now? Now, here is Ethan Shanty to tell you all about the amazing people that come together to make this all possible. Northwards is an NCPR podcast production. The show is written, edited, and produced by Mitch Tyke with digital production supervision by me, Ethan Shanty. Caitlin Kelly handles our social media, Bill Hanel is our digital director, and Doyle Dean is our production manager. Music is by the Wickmore Jazz Trio of Plattsburgh. To support this show and find more podcasts, visit ncpr.org. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio.